Chapter Twelve of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Twelve. In less than a week, Rosalie had everything and everybody in the chateau under her control, and even Jeanne yielded a passive obedience to the servant, who scolded her or soothed her as if she had been a sick child. She was very weak now, and her legs dragged along as the baronesses used to do. The maid supported her when she went out, and their conversation was always about bygone times, of which Jeanne talked with tears in her eyes, and Rosalie in a calm, quiet way of an impassive peasant. The old servant returned several times to the question of the interest that was owing, and demanded the papers which Jeanne, ignorant of all business matters, had hidden away that Rosalie might not know of Paul's misdoings. Next, Rosalie went over to Fécamp each day for a week to get everything explained to her by a lawyer, whom she knew. Then, one evening after she had put her mistress to bed, she sat down beside her and said abruptly, "'Now you're in bed, madame. We will have a little talk.' She told Jeanne exactly how matters stood, and that when every claim had been settled, she, Jeanne, would have about seven or eight thousand francs a year, not a penny more. "'Well, Rosalie,' answered Jeanne. I know I shall not live to be very old, and I shall have enough until I die. Very likely you will, madame, replied Rosalie, getting angry. But how about Monsieur Paul? Don't you mean to leave him anything? Jeanne shuddered. Pray don't ever speak to me about him. I cannot bear to think of him. Yes, but I want to talk to you about him, because you don't look at things in the right light, madame Jeanne. He may be doing all sorts of foolish things now, but he won't always behave the same. He'll marry, and then he'll want money to educate his children, and to bring them up properly. Now, listen to what I am going to say. You must sell les peuples. But Jeanne started up in bed. Sell les peuples? How can you think of such a thing? No, I will never sell the chateau. Rosalie was not in the least put out. But I say you will, madame, simply because you must. Then she explained her plans and her calculations. She had already found a purchaser for Les Peuples and the two adjoining farms. And when they had been sold, Jeanne would still have four farms at Saint-Léonard, which, freed from the mortgages, would bring in about 8,300 francs a year. Out of this income, 1,300 francs would have to go for the keeping up and repairing of the property. 2,000 would be put by for unforeseen expenses, and Jeanne would have five thousand francs to live upon. Everything else is gone, so there is an end of it, said Rosalie. But in future, I shall keep the money, and Monsieur Paul shan't have another penny off you. He'd take your last farthing. But if he has not anything to eat, murmured Jeanne, who was quietly weeping, he can come to us if he's hungry. There'll always be victuals and a bed for him. He'd never have got into trouble if you hadn't given him any money the first time he asked for some. But he was in debt. He would have been dishonoured. And don't you think he'll get into debt just the same when you've no more money to give him? You have paid his debts up to now, so well and good. But you won't pay any more, I can tell you. And now, good night, madame. And away she went. The idea of selling Les Peuples and leaving the house where she had passed all her life threw Jeanne into a state of extreme agitation, and she lay awake the whole night. I shall never be able to go away from here, she said, when Rosalie came into the room next morning. You'll have to all the same, madame, answered the maid with rising temper. 
The lawyer is coming presently with the man who wants to buy the chateau, and if you don't sell it, you won't have a blade of grass to call your own in four years' time. Oh, I cannot, I cannot, moaned Jen. But an hour afterwards came a letter from Paul, asking for ten thousand francs. What was to be done? Jeanne did not know, and, in her distress, she consulted Rosalie, who shrugged her shoulders and observed, "'What did I tell you, madame? Oh, you'd both of you have been in a nice muddle if I hadn't come back.' Then, by her advice, Jeanne wrote back, "'My dear son, I cannot help you any more. You have ruined me, and I am even obliged to sell les peuples. But I shall always have a home for you whenever you choose to return to your poor old mother, who has suffered so cruelly through you.' Jeanne. The lawyer came with Monsieur Geoffrin, who was a retired sugar-baker, and Jeanne herself received them and invited them to go all over the house and grounds. Then a month after this visit she signed the deed of sale, and bought, at the same time, a little villa in the hamlet of Batteville, standing on the Montevilliers High Road, near Gauderville. After she had signed the deeds she went out to the Baroness's Avenue and walked up and down, heart-broken and miserable while she bade tearful, despairing farewells to the trees, the worm-eaten bench under the plane-tree, the wood, the old elm-trunk against which she had leant so many times, and the hillock where she had so often sat, and whence she had watched the Comte de Fourville running towards the sea on the awful day of Julien's death. She stayed out until the evening, and at last Rosalie went to look for her and brought her in. A tall peasant of about twenty-five was waiting at the door, he greeted Jeanne in a friendly way, as if he had known her a long while. "'Good day, Madame Jeanne. How are you? Mother told me I was to come and help with the moving, and I wanted to know what you meant to take with you, so that I could move it a little at a time, without it hindering the farm work.' He was Rosalie's son, Julien's son and Paul's brother. Jeanne's heart almost stood still as she looked at him, and yet she would have liked to kiss the young fellow— she gazed at him, trying to find any likeness to her husband or her son. He was robust and ruddy-cheeked, and had his mother's fair hair and blue eyes. But there was something in his face which reminded Jeanne of Julien, though she could not discover where the resemblance lay. "'I should be very much obliged if you could show me the things now,' continued the lad. But she did not know herself yet what she would be able to take. Her new house was so small, and she asked him to come again in a week's time." For some time the removal occupied Jeanne's thoughts and made a change, though a sad one, in her dull, hopeless life. She went from room to room, seeking the pieces of furniture which were associated in her mind with various events in her life, for the furniture among which we live becomes, in time, part of our lives, almost of ourselves. And as it gets old, and we look at its faded colours, its frayed coverings, its tattered linings, we are reminded of the prominent dates and events of our existence by these time-worn objects which have been the mute companions of our happy and of our sad moments alike. As agitated as if the decisions she were making had been of the last importance, Jeanne chose, one by one, the things she should take with her, often hesitating and altering her mind at every moment, as she stood unable to decide the respective merits of two armchairs, or of some old escritoire and a still older work-table. She opened and searched every drawer, and tried to connect every object with something that had happened in bygone days, and when at last she made up her mind and said, Yes, I shall take this, 
The article she had decided upon was taken downstairs and put into the dining room. She wished to keep the whole of her bedroom furniture, the bed, the tapestry, the clock, everything, and she also took a few of the drawing-room chairs, choosing those with the designs she had always liked ever since she could remember. The fox and the stork, the fox and the crow, the ant and the grasshopper, and the solitary heron. One day, as she was wandering all over this house she should so soon have to leave, Jeanne went up into the garret. She was amazed when she opened the door. There lay articles of furniture of every description, some broken, others only soiled, others again stored away simply because fresh things had been bought and put in their places. She recognized a hundred little odds and ends, which used to be downstairs and had disappeared without her noticing their absence things of no value which she had often used, insignificant little articles which had stood fifteen years beneath her eyes and had never attracted her attention, but which now, suddenly discovered in the lumber-room, lying side by side with other things older still, and which she could quite distinctly remember seeing when she first returned from the convent, became as precious in her eyes as if they had been valued friends that had been a long time absent from her. They appeared to her under a new light, and as she looked at them, she felt as she might have done, if any very reserved acquaintances, had suddenly begun to talk and to reveal things and feelings she had never dreamed they possessed. As she went from one thing to another, and remembered little incidents in connection with them, her heart felt as if it would break. Why, this is the china cup I cracked a few days before I was married, and here is Mamma's little lantern and the cane papa broke trying to open the wooden gate the rain had swollen. Besides all these familiar objects there were a great many things she had never seen before, which had belonged to her grandparents or her great-grandparents. Covered with dust they looked like sad, forsaken exiles from another century, their history and adventures forever lost. For there was no one living now who had known those who had chosen, bought, and treasured them, or who had seen the hands which had so often touched them, or the eyes which had found such pleasure in looking at them. Jeanne touched them and turned them about, her fingers leaving their traces on the thick dust, and she stayed for a long, long time amidst these old things, in the garret which was dimly lighted by a little skylight. She tried to find other things with associations to them, and very carefully she examined some three-legged chairs, a copper warming pan, a dented foot warmer, which she thought she remembered, and all the other worn-out household utensils. Then she put all the things she thought she should like to take away together, and going downstairs, sent Rosalie up to fetch them. The latter indignantly refused to bring down such rubbish, but Jeanne, though she hardly ever showed any will of her own, now would have her own way this time, and the servant had to obey. One morning, Denis Lecoq, Julien's son, came with his cart to take away the first lot of things, and Rosalie went off with him to look after the unloading and to see that the furniture was put into the right rooms. When she was alone, Jeanne began to visit every room in the chateau and to kiss in a transport of passionate sorrow and regret everything that she was forced to leave behind her. The big white birds in the drawing-room tapestry, the old candlesticks, anything and everything that came in her way. She went from room to room, half mad with grief, and the tears streaming from her eyes and when she had gone all over the house, she went out to say good-bye to the sea. 
It was the end of September, and the dull yellowish waves stretched away as far as the eye could reach, under the lowering grey sky which hung over the world. For a long, long while, Jeanne stood on the cliff, her thoughts running on all her sorrows and troubles, and it was not till night drew on that she went indoors. In that day she had gone through as much suffering as she had ever passed through in her greatest griefs. Rosalie had returned enchanted with the new house, which was much livelier than this big barn of a place that was not even on a main road, but her mistress wept the whole evening. Now they knew the chateau was sold, the farmers showed Jeanne barely the respect that was due to her, and though they hardly knew why, among themselves they always spoke of her as the lunatic. Perhaps with their brute-like instinct, they perceived her unhealthy and increasing sentimentality, her morbid reveries, and the disordered and pitiful state of her mind, which so much sorrow and affliction had unhinged. Happening to go through the stables the day before she was to leave Les Peuples, Jeanne came upon Massacre, whose existence she had entirely forgotten. Long past the age at which dogs generally die, he had become blind and paralyzed, and dragged out his life on a bed of straw, whither Ludivine, who never forgot him, brought him his food. Jeanne took him up in her arms, kissed him, and carried him into the house. He could hardly creep along, his legs were so stiff, and he barked like a child's wooden toy dog. At length the last day dawned. Jeanne had passed the night in Julien's old room, as all the furniture had been moved out of hers, and when she rose she felt as tired and exhausted as if she had been running a long distance. In the courtyard stood the gig in which Rosalie and her mistress were to go, and a cart on which the remainder of the furniture and the trunks were already loaded. Ludivine and old Simon were to stay at the chateau until its new owner arrived, and then, too old to stay in service any longer, they were going to their friends to live on their savings and the pensions Jeanne had given them. Marius had married and left the chateau long ago. About eight o'clock a fine cold rain which the wind drove in slanting lines began to fall, and the furniture on the cart had to be covered over with tarpaulins. Some steaming cups of coffee stood on the kitchen table, and Jeanne sat down and slowly drank hers up, then rising. Let us go, she said. She began to put on her hat and shawl while Rosalie put on her galoshes. A great lump rose in her throat, and she whispered, "'Rosalie, do you remember how it rained the day we left Rouen to come here?' She broke off abruptly, pressed her hands to her heart, and fell backwards in a sort of fit. For more than an hour she lay as if she were dead. Then, when she at length recovered consciousness, she went into violent hysterics. Gradually she became calmer, but this attack had left her so weak that she could not rise to her feet.' Rosalie, fearing another attack if they did not get her away at once, went for her son, and between them they carried her to the gig and placed her on the leather-covered seat. Rosalie got up beside her, wrapped up her legs, threw a thick cloak over her shoulders, then, opening an umbrella over her head, cried, "'Make haste, and let's get off, Denis!' The young man climbed up by his mother, sat down with one leg right outside the gig for want of room, and started off his horse at a quick jerky trot which shook the two women from side to side. As they turned the corner of the village, they saw someone walking up and down the road. It was the Abbe Tolbiac, apparently waiting to see their departure. He was holding up his cassock with one hand to keep it out of the wet, regardless of showing his thin legs which were encased in black stockings, 
and his huge muddy boots. When he saw the carriage coming, he stopped and stood on one side to let it pass. Jeanne looked down to avoid meeting his eyes, while Rosalie, who had heard all about him, furiously muttered, "'You brute! You brute!' and seizing her son's hand, "'Give him a cut with the whip!' she exclaimed. The young man did not do that, but he urged on his horse, and then, just as they were passing the abbey, suddenly let the wheel of the gig drop into a deep rut. There was a splash, and in an instant the priest was covered with mud from head to foot. Rosalie laughed all over her face, and turning round she shook her fist at the abbé, as he stood wiping himself down with his big handkerchief. "'Oh, we have forgotten massacre!' suddenly cried Jeanne. Denis pulled up, gave Rosalie the reins to hold, and jumped down to run and fetch the dog. Then in a few minutes he came back with the big shapeless animal in his arms, and placed him in the gig between the two women. End of chapter 12